as we gather together in your name, for the sake of your dear Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, as your people, as your church. And we thank you, Father, for the blessing that we have, the privilege and joy that it is also to commemorate and celebrate the works of your divine providence in history. We thank you, Father, for what you did nearly 500 years ago. What you started in a backwater German town called Wittenberg that would spread throughout Germany and throughout all of Europe, even crossing the Atlantic Ocean, reaching these shores, and how that centuries later, we as your people bask in the riches of what your grace, of what your power did in the lives of those men whom you called out of darkness into your marvelous light and set apart to proclaim the riches of Christ Jesus, our Lord. What a blessing it is. What a privilege. And Father, we do not want to take that for granted in any respect. And so we come together here this evening, this weekend, to... Remember your works and glory in what you have done, Father. And we pray that as we begin tonight to unpack from your word what was the material cause of the Protestant Reformation, the heart of the gospel, Lord, I pray that as we Look into your holy scriptures and as we hear again the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and specifically the doctrine of justification by faith alone, Lord, I pray that you will give us the grace to hear this truth freshly with a renewing that will expand and enlarge our hearts in the glory and weightiness of this saving gospel doctrine. And I pray also, Father, that if there are any here this evening who have, yet, who, who have not yet entered into the blessing, the mercy of being justified by your Grace alone, in Christ alone. Father, may this very night be the night of their conversion to Christ through faith alone in Him. May the working of Your sovereign grace awaken in that one soul the understanding that will be unto their salvation in Jesus Christ. We trust in you, Lord, that as your gospel goes forth tonight, and it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, we therefore thank you, Father, that with assurance 
And with expectation, there will be sinners who come to faith in Jesus Christ because your gospel is being proclaimed. As your word tells us and promises us, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So for all of these things, we give you thanks tonight in the name of our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For his sake we pray. Amen. I'll invite you this evening to take the Word of God and let's turn to the book of Romans. And as you are turning there, I do want to first and foremost send you greetings from Sovereign Grace Baptist Church in Lenox, Georgia. For those of you who might not be familiar with where Lenox is, Lenox is in a deeper part of southern Georgia. We are just, um, well, the town of Lenox is 49 miles north of the Florida state line. My family and I, we live just 37 miles north of the Florida state line. So uh, everything is even more flat there than it is here. And I think even hotter uh, at times. Uh, We certainly have uh, more trouble with gnats, I think, in that part of Georgia. But, um, but anyway, the Lord has been very gracious, very merciful to many of His saints there in raising up a church for His glory in a very small, rural, southern town called Lenox. And we are four and a half years old as a church body there. And God is encouraging us greatly by the works of His grace in growing us and, um, and giving us the courage to take the gospel out into Cook County, Georgia, and beyond. So I do send you greetings from your sister church there in Lenox. And also, just many thanks for the elders inviting me to come and minister God's word to you this weekend. And I do pray that the Lord will be pleased to use me in some small measure to help all of us be edified more in the great doctrines of the Reformation, which are, in fact, the doctrines of God's grace in Jesus Christ, the gospel. So with that, we turn tonight to Romans chapter 3. And the title of tonight's study is simply called The Heart of the Gospel. Romans chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading at verse 21 through... Verse 31, verses 21 through 31. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes 
of our boasting. It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now let's turn and look once more at verses 22 through the first part of verse 25, because this is where our main focus is going to be. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. May God bless the reading of His holy word. We live in a day and age where the most essential and fundamental problem facing the church at large is the loss of the gospel. Local churches, even claiming to be evangelical, have set aside the truth of the gospel for the sake of numbers and results, which look very impressive by worldly standards, but it has been gained at the cost of truncating the gospel of Jesus Christ. What matters most today for many churches in the name of success is having the right personality, the right music, the right location and the right schedule to be as seeker-sensitive and culturally relevant as possible to meet the felt needs of the so-called unchurched. Therefore, rather than being gospel-driven, the majority of modern churches are market-driven with, with where the biblical doctrines of the gospel are quite literally being played down to the very point of extinction for the sake of being a user-friendly church. Of course, the sad and frightening results of losing the gospel is the pervasive ignorance of saving truth, which is being replaced by a man-centered message which does not take serious the cross of Christ, the sin of man, the wrath of God, nor eternal punishment. In fact, these gospel doctrines are deliberately removed from the preacher's message so that no one will be offended and leave the church. The gospel, therefore, in their minds, is simply too serious, and too narrow for churches to embrace and proclaim if they expect to grow in a religiously pluralistic culture. Thus, the greatest need of the hour in the life of the church is the recovery of the gospel. Which is why the greatest question we need to be raising at this hour is simply this. 
What is the gospel? Now, according to the survey and polling in the church by men like George Barna, James Hunter, and others, to ask the question, what is the gospel, is astonishingly relevant by the results of their surveys. For example, 77% of professing evangelical Christians believe that man is basically good by nature. Thus, the biblical doctrine of original sin is no longer believed by the majority of those in the church, according to that particular statistic. This means that to affirm that man is a sinner by nature as the result of Adam's fall is not held as a doctrinal conviction by most people who claim to be Christians. Another survey asked about views of salvation. And the results were alarming there also. 87% insisted that God helps those in salvation who help themselves. And over 50%, over 50% believed that all good people will go to heaven without having Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Now, What these polls are telling us is that the convictions held by the majority of professing Christians in America betray the fact that they have no idea as to what the gospel, the saving gospel, really is. Of course, these polls are also betraying a more deeper problem, which is an unregenerate church membership. But the fact that so many people who fill church Pews would be so clueless as to what the gospel is certainly points to the larger and greater problem which I have been contending thus far that the gospel has been lost. And where the gospel has primarily vanished in our day is at its very heart. In other words, the heart of the gospel itself has faded away from many pulpits and pews intentionally in many cases, for the sake of the church becoming more acceptable, tolerable, and relevant to our modern-day culture. This means, to be more precise, the biblical doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Jesus Christ alone, is a doctrine which by and large provokes the deepest offense and backlash from people at every level of society. Now, why is this? Well, the reason for the offense taken toward the heart of the gospel is the same reason it has been offensive to every generation through history since it has been preached. First of all, it is because no one wants to hear that to be right with God is entirely dependent on what God has done through His Son, Jesus Christ. Second of all, no one wants to hear that they contribute nothing to their salvation, but rather salvation is all of grace, excluding man's works. And above all, no one, no one wants to hear that they are sinful and unrighteous by nature, and thus their greatest need is a righteousness which which God provides through Christ alone. No one wants to hear that. Each of these statements simply express the heart of the gospel, which is summed up in the biblical word justification. And yet, the heart of the gospel is ignored, 
downplayed and willfully rejected by men in churches who claim to be Christian. Beloved, is it any wonder, as I have said, that the preeminent demand of the hour in the church is recovering the gospel? And specifically, it is recovering the heart of the gospel, which is captured and understood in the biblical doctrine called justification. Well, with this in mind, I want to draw your attention tonight to Romans chapter 3, verses 22 through 25, where I want us to unpack from this passage the heart of the gospel, which is the doctrine of justification. And specifically, I want to underscore the meaning and the method of justification. The meaning and method of justification as we see it in Romans chapter 3, verses 22 through 25. So, to begin with, let's consider first the meaning of justification. But before we define the doctrine of justification, let's begin under this first major point by helping us get a sense of how important this gospel truth is. Why should this doctrine matter so much to us? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why should the doctrine of justification matter so much to us? Well, to answer this question, let's just consider for a few moments what others in church history have said regarding this one doctrine. During the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, which is what we're commemorating this weekend, the doctrine of justification was considered the material cause of the Reformation. In other words, it was the core issue of the debate with medieval Catholicism. And for Martin Luther, who was the catalyst of this debate and the chief architect of the Reformation as a whole, listen to what he said about justification. Luther wrote... The article of justification is the master in prince, the Lord, the ruler, and the judge over all kinds of doctrines. It preserves and governs all church doctrine and raises up our conscience before God. Without this article, the world is utter death and darkness. On another occasion, Luther declared, if the article of justification is lost... All Christian doctrine is lost at the same time. But perhaps the most famous statement Luther ever made concerning justification was this. Luther said of justification, It is the article of faith that decides whether the church is standing or falling. Now what did Luther mean by that? He meant that when justification is understood, believed, and preached as the Bible teaches it, then the church stands in the spirit and power of God's grace through Jesus Christ. But, listen closely, but when and where this doctrine is neglected, overshadowed, or denied as it was and still is by Roman Catholicism, then the church loses its vitality and power in God's grace and becomes virtually an institution of spiritual death and darkness. John Calvin, who was Luther's contemporary serving to reform Geneva, Switzerland, 
also shared the same sentiments as Luther did regarding justification. Calvin declared, The doctrine of justification is the principal ground on which religion must be supported, so it requires greater care and attention. For unless you understand, first of all, what your position is before God and what the judgment is which He passes upon you, you have no foundation on which your salvation can be laid or on which piety towards God can be reared. Calvin's point is very simple. The doctrine of justification is basic or foundational to salvation. Why? Because it contains the essence of how a person is put right with God. But sadly, as we've already considered, this doctrine, which is the basic of basics in understanding the gospel, cannot even be defined nor even found as a category by so many in the church. But from Calvin and Luther in the 16th century... Let's fast forward to the 19th century and pay attention to another great voice, namely Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who also attached crucial importance to justification as well. Spurgeon once remarked, The doctrine of justification is very much to my ministry what bread and salt are to the table. As often as the table is set, there are those necessary things. This is the very salt of the gospel. It is impossible to bring it forward too often. It is the soul-saving doctrine. It is the foundation doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Probably Spurgeon's strongest statement concerning this doctrine was when he said, Any church which puts in the place of justification by faith in Christ another method of salvation is a harlot church. I wonder how many churches in our day would suffer under that terrible indictment. Considering one final voice to weigh in on the vital importance of the doctrine of justification, let's take in what Dr. J.I. Packer said as a part of his introductory essay for the republication of James Buchanan's classic work on this subject. In memorable words, Packer wrote this. He said, For the doctrine of justification is like Atlas. It bears a world on its shoulders, the entire evangelical knowledge of saving grace. The doctrines of election, of effectual calling, regeneration and repentance, of adoption, of prayer, of the church, the ministry and the sacraments have all to be interpreted and understood in the light of justification when Protestants let the thought of justification drop out of their minds, the true knowledge of salvation drops out with it and cannot be restored till the truth of justification is back in its proper place. When Atlas falls, everything that rested on his shoulders comes crashing down too. Now, let's take a moment here and just let the comments of these godly men sink in. Let's put their comments into some personal application, okay? How many of us could honestly say that the doctrine of justification is felt and understood in our own hearts like these men have described? 
Beloved, do we see this doctrine as the article upon which the church stands or falls? Do we see this doctrine as the salt of the gospel and a great tester as to the fidelity of a church to Christ? And does this doctrine of justification hold so much weight in our hearts and understanding that we would agree with Packer that it is like Atlas bearing the entire world of the evangelical knowledge of saving grace upon his shoulders? How would we answer these questions? Well, whatever our answer would be, this one thing I'm convinced of, The church in our day needs understanding and clarity as to the biblical doctrine of justification if, in fact, the gospel is going to be recovered. So, with that said, let's now turn to our principal point under this first major section of our study. The meaning of justification. The meaning of justification. Now, since we're seeking to define this term as it is couched in Romans 3, 22 through 25, we must begin by understanding this doctrine in the larger context of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. And then the immediate context in which we see the actual term used in Romans 3, 24. First of all, the doctrine of justification is covered directly in Romans from chapters 3 through 5, and then seats itself as the foundation for the rest of Paul's larger exposition of the gospel, which goes to the end of his letter. That's the general context. Now, in the immediate context of Romans 3.24, where the verb form of justification is used in a redemptive context, Paul has just completed a long exposition from chapter 1 in verse 18 through chapter 3 in verse 20, where he has declared all the world guilty before God because of sin. That is, Jew and Greek together are under the power and control of sin, which has infected, enslaved, and corrupted every part of their nature. Therefore, all the human race has no hope, none whatsoever, to gain the approval of God by their own merits. Moreover, it is God's law that has rendered the verdict of condemnation upon all men. Thus the law of God, that is His written revelation, which in this context of Romans 3 is referring to the entire Old Testament canon, God's law has declared a judicial sentence upon all the world. And What is that? They are guilty of sin against God, which is the transgression of His law. And the result of this guilty verdict has silenced the world under divine condemnation where there is no hope for anyone to be justified in God's sight by the works of the law, which are the demands of the law. In other words, man in sin is under the curse and condemnation of God's law and there is nothing he can do by his own merits, to escape this judgment. Hence, he is guilty of breaking God's law, and nothing he attempts will absolve him, that is, will free him of his guilt. Now, the reason for this is twofold. First, God, 
as the lawgiver is holy and just and immutable. That is unchanging. Thus his law, which is the expression of his holiness and justice, will not break nor change in respect to its demands. God's law, understand this, beloved, God's law does not curve or bend, nor does it stretch like the laws of men do. Human laws can be bendable and therefore relax their demands by not receiving full satisfaction for the justice they require. But God's law cannot and will not be manipulated like that because God Himself cannot and will not be manipulated like that. What God declares by His law will be met to full satisfaction. Justice will be fulfilled. Secondly, what God's law demands in respect to all men is on the one hand, perfect obedience to the law, and on the other hand, condemnation for those who will not perfectly obey. So then, because all the world is guilty of breaking God's law, and cannot therefore render perfect obedience to its demands, then all the world is under condemnation of God's law and without hope to absolve themselves from their guilt. A hopeless, terrible situation for all of us left to ourselves. But it is right here, at this very point, where the gospel comes in with this good news. Sinners can be justified by God in spite of their sin and the condemnation they deserve under God's law. And this hope for acceptance or approval by God is captured by this one single word, justified. So, what then does this word mean? When we read here in Romans 3.24 that God has justified us by His grace as a gift. What is the sense of this term? Well, in the first place, we need to recognize that when Paul uses this word justified, he is employing a Greek word that is utilized 39 times in the New Testament. Its basic meaning is this, to deem or declare to be right. To deem or declare to be right. Carries the idea of declaring someone by a legal or forensic act as righteous. This means they are free from all charges that they were in fact guilty of in relation to the law. In the biblical sense then, To justify is to render a judicial pronouncement of the guilty sinner as not guilty in respect to everything the law demands. Or to say it another way, to justify is a divine judgment God is declaring of a sinner who deserves the full punishment of the law for his sin, but is now free from that punishment and treated by the lawgiver himself, in this case God, as righteous in the sight of the law. So, in the light of this explanation, 
What then is the gospel doctrine of justification? What is it? It is this. Listen closely. Justification is God's gracious and sovereign act whereby He removes from the sinner every lawful reason for why the sinner should be condemned by God and thus, in turn, God now regards the sinner as completely righteous in relation to the demands of the law. Henceforth, when we read here in Romans 3.24 that God has justified us, we need to understand and take this in, brothers and sisters, we need to understand that God is declaring that everything His law requires for perfect righteousness and the total satisfaction of His justice has been met in full. God counts us in a legal sense as perfectly righteous. A divine judgment of guilty therefore can no longer be charged against the sinner whom God justifies. Do you understand that? All the charges have been dropped. His guilt has been taken away. He is now justified by God. That is the meaning of justification. But now that we have defined justification, there is always a question which surfaces at this point. How is it that God can remain just and holy while at the same time declaring righteous those who are not righteous in themselves but polluted and corrupted by sin? How does God do this? In other words... On what grounds can God declare sinners free from the condemnation of the law when they have done nothing to satisfy the righteousness of the law's demands? It appears we have a dilemma. <laughs> it appears that way. Well, answering these questions leads us to our second point of study, which is the method of justification. The method of justification, or we could say more accurately, God's method of justification. And looking at verses 22 through 25 here in Romans 3, this is what we're told. Look at it again. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now, in the first two verses of this passage, verses 22 and 23, Paul simply recaps his aforementioned exposition on man as a sinner under the wrath of God from chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3 and verse 20. The crucial thing to understand in these verses is that, first of all, we are being reminded of the universal problem of sin. For all have sin. There is no distinction for all have sin. And second of all, in our sinful state, what are we doing? We are continually falling short or lacking the favor and approval of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So then, 
being in this sinful condition with no moral ability to gain God's acceptance and thus meeting the righteous requirement of His law, how does God justify us in this position? What is God's method in declaring us to be righteous by the standards of His law? Well, based on verses 24 and 25... There are three ways in which God's Word answers these questions. First, we are justified by God's grace as a gift. We are justified by God's grace as a gift. This is what we're plainly told in the opening words of verse 24. And are justified by His grace as a gift. The term grace in reference to God's salvation means His undeserved, unmerited, and uninfluenced favor bestowed upon sinners who deserve His wrath. And in case we might be tempted to think that, well, maybe we have some little small contribution to this bestowed favor, Paul adds these words, as a gift. As a gift. The term gift comes from a Greek word that means freely. Freely. God declares us righteous freely by His grace. There is no human merit involved in justification whatsoever. None at all. We do not and cannot earn to be justified by God. This is an act He exercises by His grace as a gift. This means, therefore, that God does not owe us justification. He is not obligated to justify any of us. And Why is that? Well, do we need to be reminded of this again? We have sinned. We have sinned against Him, rebelling against His authority, suppressing His truth in exchange for lies and replacing the worship He deserves for the worship of ourselves. That's Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3 in summary. We are thus in no position to earn His favor and to make matters worse. Listen, to make matters worse, according to Romans 3.11, we have no interest nor inclination to seek God in a saving way. So the only thing God owes us is condemnation and wrath. Moreover, His law demands this. Yet in spite of what we deserve, God bestows upon us what we do not deserve. He justifies us by His grace as a gift. So justification comes to us freely without any merit or payment on our part. It is by God's grace as a gift. Secondly, We are justified by the saving merits of Jesus Christ. We are justified by the saving merits of Jesus Christ. Looking again at verse 24 and then on to verse 25. And are justified by His grace as a gift. And then notice, important preposition here, through, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation By His blood. Martin Lloyd-Jones 
calls this very passage in Romans 3 the vindication of God. The vindication of God. The reason for this is because here we see exactly how God can declare guilty sinners righteous and yet remain holy and just with the standards of His law satisfied to the full. You see, the only grounds... Now, this is what we've, we've got to take this in. Wrap your mind around this as tightly as you can. The only grounds upon which any of us could be justified by God without squandering the justice of God's law was to have the full demands of the law, both in precept and penalty, laid upon someone else who could meet them without breaking them. Well, to accomplish this, what did God do? What did He do? He sent His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, into this world to meet the demands of the law and render complete, total satisfaction for the justice God's law requires. This means that Jesus Christ came to be our substitute and thus live and die in our place so that He could fulfill in His sinless humanity the righteousness of God's law in our behalf. And it is the obedience of Christ which fulfilled the righteousness of God's law that, listen, that God credits to our account. And on that basis alone, God declares us righteous. This is the only reason He can justify us freely by His grace. It is all because of what Christ did in our behalf. Now here in Romans chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, notice that Paul, he highlights two aspects of the death of Christ which purchased our justification. They are redemption and propitiation. Redemption and propitiation. By redemption, what are we being told? We're being told that Christ bought us out of the slave market of sin by His own precious blood. The word redemption means to ransom by the payment of a price. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus declared that He was giving Himself as a ransom for many. This is our Savior's work of redemption. He is our Redeemer because He has paid the necessary price which the law demanded for our sin, namely, death. This is what Galatians 3, 13 calls the curse of the law, which we are told Christ Redeemed us from. He has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Furthermore, as Romans 6, 1 through 4 teaches, that by the death of Christ, we are also freed from the enslaving power of sin. Therefore, on the grounds of Christ's redeeming work in our behalf, God could justify us freely by His grace. The second word Paul uses to describe the price paid 
for our justification through Christ is propitiation. That's a big, important word. And one that has come under a lot of attack in our day. In verse 25, we read that God put Christ forward as a propitiation. Now, what does this mean, propitiation? Well, the essential meaning of this biblical term is to appease or satisfy the anger of another by the offering of a gift. Thus, what Romans 3.25 is telling us is, is the most the most amazing and incomprehensible news we could ever hear. God the Father put forward His beloved Son as the only acceptable gift to satisfy the justice and wrath of His law against us as sinners so that we would receive mercy and be saved. To state this another way, Jesus died in the place of condemned sinners by becoming condemned for us so that He could remove our condemnation completely to the satisfaction of the justice and holiness of God's law. This is the grace of propitiation. Think about it. Let it sink in. Christ took all our guilt and thereby consumed in His death God's wrath to the full so that God would remain just and yet free to justify sinners who deserve His condemnation for their sin. This is the ground of our justification. It is not in what we have done. It is all in what Christ has done in our place. So, how does God justify us? What is His method? It is by His grace through the saving merits of Jesus Christ. It is by His grace through the saving merits of Jesus Christ. But, notice this. According to Romans 3.25, There is one more element to God's method of justification. We are justified by faith alone. We are justified by faith alone. Looking once more at verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. And then look at these words. To be received by faith. To be received by faith. There are three important aspects concerning the nature and place of faith in our justification by God that must be understood. First and foremost, listen closely. It is not because of faith that we are justified, but by faith, or as Romans 3.22 says, Through faith. I'm not splitting hairs here over these terms. Listen closely. Faith, faith is not the reason or the basis for why we're justified by God. 
Faith does not save us. Rather, the only reason or basis we are justified by God is Jesus Christ and His finished work, period. What Christ has done is the only, you understand? It is the only acceptable grounds of our justification. Faith, therefore, is not a work. It is not a work that we do because we are not depending on faith to be saved, but our dependence is upon Christ's work for salvation. So what then is faith? Faith is simply the channel or the instrument through which we receive what Christ has done in our behalf. You do not have faith in faith, my friend. You have faith in Christ. Faith is the instrument, the channel through which we receive Jesus Christ and what He's done to save us. Secondly, the nature of true saving faith is looking only to Christ, believing the right things about Him, agreeing with the truth about Him, and trusting Him entirely as our only acceptance and righteousness before God. As the great hymn, Rock of Ages, says so aptly, Nothing in my hand I bring, but simply to thy cross I cling. You hear that? Nothing in my hand I bring. You and I contribute nothing. Nothing. All of our hope, all of our confidence is resting in Christ alone. Martin Lloyd-Jones once expanded on this truth about the nature of saving faith, looking only to Christ, when he observed this. Listen to what Lloyd-Jones said. He said, the man who has faith is the man who is no longer looking at himself and no longer looking to himself. He no longer looks at anything he once was. He does not look at what he is now. He does not look at what he hopes to be as the result of his own efforts. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and His finished work and he rests on that alone. That is saving faith. That is saving faith. But thirdly and finally, the moment we trust in Christ alone to save us, in that moment, we are justified by God and declared righteous forever. Justification Justification occurs the very instant a sinner savingly receives Christ by faith. This is the very connection you see with 
faith and justification here in Romans. Beginning at chapter 3 and verse 21, going all the way to chapter 4 and verse 5. In fact, Romans 3.28 puts it very plainly. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. The moment that you receive Christ by faith, the moment that you look savingly to Him, in that moment, God justifies you. It is an instantaneous work of God in His grace. And it is a work that will not be in a process like what Roman Catholicism teaches. But it is a work that is done once and for all. For all time. Forever. Forever. And the great joy, listen, the great joy we have in justification is that is that the moment we receive it by faith in Jesus Christ, it can never be taken away from us. It can never be taken away from us. Now, how is this? Because our justification is not based on what we've done. It is not our faith that justifies us. But God, by His grace, on the grounds of what Christ has done in our behalf, that is what justifies us, and that alone. This is why Romans 8 and verse 1 promises. And we love this promise, don't we? There is therefore now, what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We love that promise. We thank God for that promise. Brothers and sisters, the only reason we have that promise is because of what Jesus did, not because of what we have done. That promise is resting. That promise is anchored. That promise is yes and amen only in Jesus Christ. Only on the grounds of what He has done now and forever. Now and forever. So, in the light of this then, let me ask you a crucially important question. Are you right with God today? Where are you looking for justification with God? Where? Are you looking at what you can do? Or what Jesus Christ has done? What confidence do you have that God accepts you? I have raised that one single question to so many people for so many years. And do you know that I have yet to receive the right answer to that question? What I typically hear in answer to that question is, well, um, 
My confidence is in the fact that I'm a good person. My confidence is in the fact that I walked an aisle. I prayed a prayer. My confidence is in the fact that my parents are Christians. My confidence is in the fact that I have membership in the church. I remember raising that question at a Christian school where I once taught. Twenty-five students, all seventh graders, raised in a good Southern Baptist church. And I raised this question to them and I wanted them to write the answer down to me. When I received all 25 papers back, not one single paper mentioned Jesus Christ at all. Scary. Sad. What confidence do you have that God accepts Do you have a righteousness? Do you have a righteousness that God will accept? Are you possessing a righteousness that He will accept? Do you have a righteousness that meets God's standard and satisfies His law completely? Do you have that? Where is your confidence and on what basis is all your hope that you are indeed under the favor of God? Based on what we have seen tonight in Romans 3, verses 22 through 25, beloved, we must never think, we must never, never, never think that we can earn or achieve God's acceptance by our own efforts. What does the Word of God tell us about our righteousness? All our righteousness is shot through with sin. It is filthy rags and thereby unacceptable to God, no matter how hard and sincere we may try to merit God's approval. On this, we must be absolutely clear and certain. We have nothing in ourselves to offer God for justification. In fact, left to ourselves All we can produce are works of unrighteousness and sin in spite of how good we may look to the rest of the world. So, in what direction then must we look to be truly right with God? Where can we be sure? Where can we be certain that God will accept us and thus justify us in His sight. There is only one direction where we can look to be justified by God. One direction only. To Christ and to Christ alone. That's it. That's it. There is no salvation found in any other but Jesus Christ and His finished work. But, listen, here's the promise of God's Word. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord 
shall what? Shall be saved. That is not the preacher's promise. That is God's promise. And so I say to you, look to Christ. Call upon Him. And His promise to you will be met. Whoever calls on His name will be saved. Can God lie? No. He cannot, He will not break His promises because He cannot lie. So hear the promise. Act upon it in faith. And by the authority of God's holy word, you will be justified. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for the clarity and the simplicity of Your glorious Gospel. And we thank You, Father, that You have done everything needed so that we, guilty, hell-deserving sinners as we are, can be, in fact, declared righteous in Your holy sight. Father, You have... You have done it all so that we can be Yours, that we can indeed be righteous by Your standards. And we thank You, Father, tonight that that righteousness is found only in Your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, And we thank You, Lord, that as You have told us in Your Word, that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so I ask, even now, Father, in behalf of that One who is yet to be justified by Your grace, who's yet to come into that state of grace, May You work in them the grace even now to call savingly upon Christ. To stop looking at themselves, to stop looking at their family or anything else that they have believed would be the grounds for their justification before You. Lord, I pray, work in them that grace that only You can work whereby they will cry out and call out to Jesus their Lord to save them to the uttermost. We trust in You, Father, for that work of redeeming grace even now as Your Word has gone forth that it shall not return void. In Jesus' name and for His sake we pray. Amen.